today we're wrapping up our series called Bones. And this has been a really fascinating series. We have looked at Adam and Eve and we've considered what it means when God says, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We looked at Ezekiel and the valley of dry bones and how God breathes life into that place. And last week we celebrated Scott and Reagan Gilliland's ministry here at Lover's Lane. And they talked about carrying the bones with them. Like the ancestors of Joseph carried his bones from, is- from Egypt all the way to Israel. And today we're going to be looking at the story of Job. Just like you heard in our children's moment. One of his friends experienced fear all the way down to their bones. And so before we get started this morning, I want to ask you to pray with me. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that we are gathered here in this time and in this way. We know that you are with us right here in this moment, Lord, and where two or three are gathered in your name, you are here with us. Lord, make your presence known to us. Open our hearts and minds to receive what you would teach us today. God, we love you and we trust you. And we pray these things in your holy and precious and resurrected name. Amen. So my question for you this morning is, have you ever experienced fear all the way down to your bones? I asked myself that that question um, this week as I was preparing for the sermon, and I immediately was taken back to my very first mission trip to Haiti, which happened in 2011. We went right after the earthquake struck Port-au-Prince. We took 10 young adults from Lover's Lane, um, and we went to this mountainous region called Hinch, which is actually about a five-hour drive through the mountains up to the very center of Haiti. And this trip was incredible, and God moved, and I would love to tell you all about it sometime, and I want to invite you to come to Haiti with us when we get to go back at some point. But one of the things I will never forget about Haiti was the size of the spiders in Hinch. They were literally like this big. See, the accommodations were very remote. We all ended up sleeping inside of the church that we were actually constructing. So our little mosquito net tents were set up on our cots and we were slinging concrete everywhere and everything was was dirtier than we're used to. We had no running water. We took a bath using a bucket and we went to the bathroom in this little concrete hole that had this enclosure thing around it with a little door. And at night is when these huge spiders would come out. And I mean huge spiders. And they were always up in the corner. They didn't ever move. They were just there. And so the girls developed this system that whenever you had to go to the bathroom, you took at least one buddy with you. When you went in, the two of you would shine your flashlights. And one one person would stand outside the door while the other person was inside, you know, doing their thing. But before you went in, you would count the spiders. You would say, okay, there's five spiders. And keep the flashlight there so I can see them. Well... One, one day, my friend Amy was my bathroom buddy, and Amy is the most incredible person in the world. She's now the pastor of Christ's Foundry. Many of you are familiar with her. She was on our mission trip. We, we did our thing. I counted the spiders. I went into the bathroom, and I got freaked out because I was certain that one of the spiders was gone when I came out. And I said, Amy, Amy, one of the spiders is gone. And she said, Kay, it's on your back. It's on your back. And y'all, I completely lost my mind. I started screaming and running around like a crazy person. And Amy saw how terrified I was. And she said, I'm so sorry. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. 
To this day, I'm not sure if I've forgiven her for this joke. But I ended up climbing into my little mosquito net, curling up in the fetal position, rocking back and forth and crying because I experienced fear down to my bones. Now that's a silly and funny story, but many of us experience fear all the way down to our bones, and it has nothing to do with spiders or things like that. It has to do with the experiences that are around us. Fear is a part of life, and I wish that I could sit with each of you and hear your stories of what has been scaring you, what has scared you in the past. It might be a diagnosis or fear of the unknown or an uncertain economy. Fear can affect our opportunities and our relationships. Fear can keep us awake at night. I would dare say that all of us have had this experience. But fear, it doesn't always have to be a bad thing, because what fear does to us is actually really unique to the human condition. Andy Stanley puts it this way. He says, fear is a byproduct of our ability to accumulate knowledge and then project that knowledge into the future. So we're able to accumulate, we're able to take in knowledge and ideas and concepts, and then we can project what's going to happen with those ideas and knowledge and concepts into the future. That's a gift that God has given to humanity. My dog can't do that. A fish in a little bowl can't do that. But we have this unique gift to take information in and then project it into the future. And it's a beautiful thing because that is what allows us to hope in a future. That is what allows us to imagine. That's what allows us to dream. That's a great thing. However, we can, we can do this with fear too. We can take all of that stuff, all of that knowledge, and we can take it to a place of fear really quickly because we have the ability to do that. This ability can cause us to fear, and then fear can put us off balance and cause us to become self-absorbed or overly protective or keep us up at night. I believe most of us have experienced this. So in the Old Testament, we find the book of Job, and we could spend literally months going through the book of Job. But I want us to focus today on one of Job's friends named Eliphaz. We're introduced to Job in chapter 1 of the book, and we're told that this man was blameless and upright. He feared God, and he shunned evil. Note that word fear there, that Job feared God. He was blameless. He was upright. He was faithful to his wife. He was kind to the poor. He was generous with his workers. He was a wealthy landowner who had thousands of sheep and camels and oxen. He had 10 children, and every single day he would go to the temple and make an offering and pray for them. His life was one of virtue and uprightness. So much so that God, God noticed Job. Job drew the attention of God because he was blameless and upright. So there's this story. Um, God and Satan make this wager. And God says, I know, without a shadow of a doubt, I know that Job will remain faithful to me. And Satan says, well, I don't think he will. I think that he will curse your name if bad things start to happen to him. And so we see through this book of Job that he literally loses everything in one single day. His livestock, his servants are destroyed by enemies. His field burns up with fire. His children are killed by this freak windstorm that comes through and collapses their tent, their home. 
Job himself is stricken with these terrible sores that are all over his body, these welts that come up on his body. But the scripture tells us that yet Job remained faithful to God. He would not curse God as his wife encouraged him to do. The scripture tells us over and over that after these things happened, Job remained faithful to God. Job maintained his integrity. He did not sin. He did not curse God. And in the midst of all of this terrible, Job worshiped God. Job feared God. So we see Job goes to this ash heap and he grieves this great loss And three of his friends come with him to comfort him, and they sit with him in silence for seven days and seven nights, which is a Jewish tradition that is still practiced today called sitting Shiva. So they sit Shiva with him. Seven days, seven nights, they're silent. And then after that time, Job has to cry out to God. He has to speak out loud, and he he cries out to God for comfort. But his friend, Eliphaz, he's been sitting there for seven days and seven nights too, and he has some things to say. He doesn't think Job has got it quite right. He can't help himself but to speak up. Some of us have some friends like this too, and we really just need their presence. They have sometimes too much to say. But Eliphaz just can't keep quiet anymore, and he launches into this monologue to Job about how Job must have sinned to have this tragedy that he was experiencing. He says in Job 4, 7, he says, Who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? You must have done something wrong, Job. You think you're so upright, but you lost everything, so you're obviously wrong. Essentially, he's saying to Job, you're reaping what you sow, that, that he could not have been upright and blameless after all, and that the suffering that Job was experiencing must be a result of some secret sin in his life that we don't know about. So just a side note, that's not theology that I buy into or that we buy into. We don't believe that God causes the bad things to happen. We believe that bad things happen because we live in a broken world where sin happens and and stuff happens that's not caused by God, but we hold on to the fact that we know God is with us in whatever it is that we're facing. But Eliphaz, he goes on to talk about this dream that he had, and it's really interesting. You should go read chapter 4 of Job, but he has this dream in verse 12 of chapter 4. He says that some sort of ghost or some sort of spirit passed over him in the night, and he had goosebumps. He calls them like Um, all the hair stood up on his body is how the the scripture tells us. And he says, I have fear and trembling that seized me and made all of my bones shake. We've probably experienced something that made our bones shake, right? But Eliphaz, he goes on to say that this dream revealed to him that no one could be righteous like God. Job, you have got it wrong. No one could be pure of heart. Job, Mm-mm, this isn't, this isn't right. You must have some sort of secret sin that's causing your suffering. So that's not as exactly comfort to a guy who's just lost everything, right? I remember this time in college, I was experiencing these really terrible headaches, and my roommate's church, different church than mine, wanted to come and lay hands on me and pray, and they did. And as they were praying, they kept praying that God would remove the sin that was causing my headaches. Um, And that wasn't especially comforting or helpful to me, Um, but it's very similar to what Eliphaz is doing here with Job. 
But there's something interesting that going on here. Eliphaz, he has this great fear that comes over his body so much that it like shakes him to his core. But Eliphaz does not understand. He doesn't seem to understand the presence and the power of God or that Job could be blameless or upright simply because of his faith in God. What I find really interesting if we go back to Job 1.1 is that it tells us that Job feared God. He feared God and he shunned evil. So there's something to this fear of God that's different than the fear of projecting knowledge and information into the future that causes fear, which is what Eliphaz does. He's like, okay, I have all this stuff coming at me, and obviously that's what this means. But Job is able to take the knowledge of knowing who God is and project it into a future and know that there is hope even in the midst of stunning loss and hardship. Do you know that there are 365 references to the phrase, do not be afraid, or do not fear, or fear not, or some version of that in the Bible? Maybe we need a daily reminder to not be afraid, because like we said, fear is a reality in our lives. However, there's the story of Jesus and his disciples that I want us to look at. It might be familiar to some of you. But there are some central messages that Jesus teaches his disciples throughout his ministry, and one of them is simply do not be afraid. But saying do not be afraid is one thing, and Jesus is just like, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Stop being scared. Just stop it. Just quit. Don't let fear control you. It's really easy to say, but really hard to do, right? How do we actually fear not? How do we not let fear take control, especially when there are very real things in the world to be afraid of? So Jesus gathers his disciples, those who have given their lives for him, and he prepares to send them out onto this mission. And he says, listen, y'all, I really think Jesus spoke Texan. At least he does to me. He said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. This is Matthew 10, 16. And that's a metaphor for us. I'm not around sheep much. But the disciples, they knew what it meant for a sheep to be around wolves. The sheep were hunted and killed and eaten. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And you are going to experience hardship. You most likely will be beaten, arrested, even martyred for the ministry that you do in my name. That's scary. That is something any normal human being would be afraid of. And Jesus goes on. He gives this example that Miss Jennifer talked about in our children's moment. He reminds them that two sparrows just cost a penny. Essentially, they're they're worthless. But these sparrows aren't worthless to God. God loves them and cares for them. And then he says to them, Matthew 10, 30, Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. But just saying don't be afraid doesn't really make it go away. Fear is a part of life, but what we do with that fear becomes really important. Jesus reminds his disciples that God loves them, that God cares about you, and you can face the scary because you know Jesus. You know God with you. Jesus teaches this over and over. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. He teaches it to his disciples, but then he teaches it to us as well. 
Then we read about this time when the disciples are really tested in this fear. It's kind of like they're in a classroom learning from Jesus, and then Jesus is like, let's go on this field trip and see if you really understand what I'm teaching you. And what I love about the disciples is that I can identify with them because they hardly ever get it right, and they try so hard. But in Matthew chapter 8, we read about a time when Jesus goes into a boat and his disciples follow him. That's what followers of Christ do. They go into the boat with him. And the scripture tells us, without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. That's a reason to be afraid in my book. If, if you've been on a boat before and even just like the rocking uh, from a big wave can create fear in us. But just imagine the waves coming into the boat and it's pitch black. There's no flashlights. There's thunder and lightning everywhere. The rain is pouring down, soaking them. I'm sure they had to scream over each other uh, because the sound was so loud. The wind was so loud. And then we find Jesus sleeping. How the storm didn't wake him up, I don't know. Was he faking? Well, I don't know. But the disciples wake him up, and the scripture tells us that, you know, they wake him up, and it's not like a, hey, Jesus, wake up. Good morning. It's like, Jesus, wake up, wake up. I'm sure they were yelling and shaking him to wake up. And he wakes up, and he says, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? I bet Jesus was thinking, we've talked and talked about this, but he is kind and he reminds them not to be afraid. He stands up, maybe he stands up, or maybe he just, you know, lounges up on one arm and he rebukes the winds and he rebukes the waves and all becomes calm. What happens here is that Jesus doesn't panic in the storm. The disciples are the ones who panicked. And all of the stuff that we go through in life and all of the storms and all of the things that cause fear, God doesn't panic. We are the ones who panic. I think this is what Jesus wants the disciples to realize. I think this is what Jesus wants us to realize. God doesn't panic. God is never seized with fear. We are often the ones who turn to fear. But then the scripture goes on. It says the disciples in the boat were amazed. They were amazed that everything just calmed down at the sound of this man's voice. And, and they asked this question, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The same story in the gospel of Mark says it this way. They were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. What kind of man is this? Who is this? Some translations tell us that the disciples then feared a great fear. You see, the disciples ask the right question here. What kind of man is this? We know the answer to this. Jesus was not only a man. Jesus was fully divine. Jesus is God in God's self. And this question, what kind of man is this, shows us that initially they feared the storm. They feared what was happening around them, but then they realized who was in the boat with them. The king of the universe, the master of the wind and the seas, the savior of the world was in the boat with them, and they feared a greater fear. They were in awe of God with them. 
they had this holy reverence or this holy fear of whose presence they were in. And for a moment, maybe even just a fleeting moment, their fear, their awe of Jesus overwhelmed their fear of the storm. The lesson of Jesus to the disciples is this. You don't have to let fear overwhelm you because there is something more overwhelming. I am more overwhelming. I will overwhelm your heart with peace that passes understanding. You don't have to let fear control your thoughts because there is something more overwhelming. I will speak tenderly into your hearts, tenderly into your mind, the words that you need to hear because I am with you. You don't have to let fear dictate your next move. I am with you in all things and you can trust me. You don't have to let fear be the centerpiece of your life because there is something greater. I am the greater and I am with you and I care for you and I love you. You see, Job understood this something greater. Remember Job 1.1 told us that Job feared God. He was so overwhelmed with God's presence in his life that he had this holy reverence, this holy fear, this holy awe of God. And even in the midst of tragedy, when he could have succumbed easily to fear, he remained faithful to God with every ounce of his being. Job wasn't afraid because he knew God. He still faced suffering. He still faced hardship. But he was able to face those things because of God's presence with him. He knew the answer to the question, who is this man? He knew God. We too don't have to be afraid because we know God too. The love God has for you is overwhelming greater than anything else. When we are overwhelmed with fear, may we be overwhelmed with the greater awe of knowing Christ our Lord, God's presence with us in all things. And so if we go back to the disciples, they watched as Jesus entered into Jerusalem the last week of his life. He entered to crowds who were cheering him and praised him. And by the very end of the week, those same people had him arrested and beaten and spat upon and crucified. And what did the disciples do again? They panicked. They questioned everything. They got really scared. They thought that Jesus must have been lying about everything he told them. They thought that they got it wrong. They hid. They lied. They denied. But then three days later, They witnessed the empty tomb where they they saw the body of Christ, but it was gone. Jesus was resurrected. And all of a sudden, everything made sense. All of what Jesus had said was true after all. Everything that Jesus taught them was right. And so the resurrection became about every single thing that they did. It wasn't just something that they talked about at Easter, but it impacted every ounce of their lives and every ounce of their ministries. The resurrection gave them confidence and strength and validated the answer to the question, who is this man? It's the king of the universe, the savior of the world. The world continued to be a scary place, but they went into all the world just as Jesus commanded them at the end of Matthew. And they went without fear because they knew the overwhelming presence of God with them that cast out all fear. 
They didn't have to be afraid of being beaten or rejected or killed, and most of them were. But they weren't afraid because they knew the great fear of the Lord. They learned, like Job, what it means to fear not, and they went on to change the world. Perhaps this concept of fear not is what changes the world. What does it look like for you to name your fear, but allow yourself to be so overwhelmed with the holy fear, the holy awe of the Lord that then leads us to greater hope? Can you imagine what our church would look like if we reject evil and injustice and oppression without fear, but claim the overwhelming presence with Christ in those places? What would our world look like if we lived without fear, without fear of the other, without fear of rejection, without fear of sickness, without fear of destruction? What would it be like for us collectively to be overwhelmed, to be so overwhelmed, because we know the man who's in the boat with us? When we worship a resurrected Lord who conquered death, we can fear not because we know where to fix our attention and our affection. For all those places that cause fear, all the way down to your bones, I pray that you will be able to allow the resurrected Lord to be with you in those places. We know the resurrected Christ, and because of him, we can change the world without fear. Fear not, my friends, for God is with you. Amen.